Latino Stories, Historias Latinas, es un podcast que nace del proyecto de narrativas orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio, con entrevistas en español, inglés, and Spanglish. My, my guest today is Norma Cantú. Norma Elia Cantú was born in Nuevo Laredo, Tamaulipas, and raised in Laredo, Texas. She is the Noreen and Frank Murchison Professor of the Humanities at Trinity University. She is an activist, scholar, poet, folklorist, and a writer of many, many publications, including the novels Cabañuelas, and Canicula, Imágenes de una Niñez Fronteriza, and poetry collections such as the latest, Meditación Fronteriza, Poems of Love, Life, and Labor. Bienvenida a este episodio, Doctora Cantú. It's an honor to record this episode with you. Al contrario, gracias for the invitation. This, I'm really, truly honored to be here. Norma, tell me about growing up in the U.S.-Mexico border. And it's probably, I know the questions that I asked for you could go into two or three episodes. <laughs> but That's tell, true. Yes, tell me a little well, bit about that experience. Uh, growing up in Laredo, specifically, I can't say it's representative of the entire border region, but definitely growing up in Laredo, it was a really special time and space. Mm -hmm. First of all, it was, of course, a long time ago. I'm 75. Mm -hmm. And the world was different at that time. And we crossed como si nada. There were no papers required. In fact, once a year during the George Washington's birthday celebration, había puente libre, mm -hmm. which meant people came and went como si nada. It was not required to show any papers. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have any family in Nuevo Laredo, but I had family in Monterrey. My dad's family was all from the Monterrey area. So we would travel. My mom was born in Corpus. My dad was born in Aguascalientes. Um, my dad was born in Allende, Coahuila. And so it's a, another border town, pero más al, al norte. So growing up was a bit schizophrenic, <laughs> <laughs> uh, as I'm sure you other border dwellers can attest. Uh, but at the same time, it was quite an asset because at home, it was all Spanish. Right. At school, it was all English. It wasn't always all English. Mm -hmm. We were punished for speaking Spanish, mm -hmm. physically hit and writing lines. I must not speak Spanish in the playground, mm -hmm. stuff like that. Pero a pesar de todo eso, and I'm going to be using Spanglish here. That's great. <laughs> it was... Um, it's beautiful, and I get all nostalgic for those days when we could cross back and forth to Mexico, to Nuevo Laredo, mm -hmm. and life was very different in terms of it. The, the, it was slower, I guess you could say. I have great memories of just being with my family, especially in the summer. I would go spend summers in Monterrey with my grandmother, mm -hmm. and then I, of course, had the U.S. life at you know the regular high school stuff. And it was also kind of oppressive, but we didn't know it. Mm. Like, our streets were not paved. And that was kind of the way it was. Right. And yet, when I started noticing, the ranches of the landowners were paved with city money. Mm. So there was obviously a lot of discrimination that we were not aware of. Mm -hmm. But it was not necessarily ethnic. It was class. Mm -hmm. 
and the powers that be that control the politics and the money in the community had a pretty strong hold on who could practice what. I remember even in the 80s when I went back and I was teaching at the university, one of my students, brilliant student, was going to be a teacher. And she said she couldn't find a job in Laredo. And we're always in need of teachers. And she told me it was because her dad was involved in the politics <laughs> with the wrong party. Mm. So she had to go elsewhere to yeah. teach. I mean, that kind of control. Right. You're making me think. I mean, I also grew up in the border, right? I grew up in Matamoros, Tamaulipas, and... Um, and so first I wanted to comment on this going back and forth. I, you know, when I was growing up there, we did have like the tarjeta local that we mm -hmm. had to show to go across. But it was not individual. Like if you had minors in your family, you can have the whole family in a picture, right? Uh, and mm -hmm. we were all able to cross with my mom back and forth. But even with that sort of stipulation that you show, you know, this particular tarjeta local, um, it was so easy, like natural to go back and forth. Um, people just moved, you know, from one um, side to the other, de un lado al otro, no? Mm -hmm. uh, with ease, with um, just normal, right? Like we go across to visit las abuelitas, las tías, or vice versa, or go shopping, you know, at either either side of the border. Um, and, and some, you know, as I, I, I moved away when I was 17, and when, when I reflect about that, even what you're talking, you know, sort of the inequities that, that existed, that you're not aware so much of it when you're a child. Because I remember in una de las colonias, right, like some uh, of the colonias were paved. They have paved streets mm -hmm. and some didn't. And I remember to go visit one of my aunts that lived there. We had to, like, poner las botas de para el lodo, right? Like, we had to prepare mm -hmm. <laughs> because we knew that um, it was going to be muddy, and so we had to, like, prepare for that. Or there might be rain, so you just had to prepare for that kind of, you know, uh, weather. And, and I didn't... You know, now I when I think back, man, I'm like, yeah, there was no really reason why some colonias would have this and some didn't. And these were not new colonias either. They were they had been there for a while, so it's not like oh, suddenly you know this houses appeared. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the inequity. Right. And the other thing was health. Mm -hmm. I remember a high school friend of mine came down with leprosy. Mm. I mean, who hears about leprosy, right? right? Mm -hmm. uh, and there were, of course, cases of tuberculosis, all kinds of other health crises that are not in the mainstream. Right. But on the border, yes, we mm -hmm. had that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, in previous interviews, you have talked about your creative production as rooted in ethnographic or autoethnographic work, which obviously includes your experiences in the border. Um, so your work is rooted in your work as a folklorist. Uh, can you talk to us about this creative process? <laughs> it's a hard one because reflecting on it, it's not that I consciously said, oh, I'm going to do this this way. Right. It's almost organic. Mm -hmm. The canicula, which is probably the best example of that autobiography, came about um, Pretty naturally, I started, I was teaching in my university classes in Laredo and asking students to write about photographs and culture because 
as you say, I am a folklorist. I was not officially trained. I always joke that I'm an undocumented folklorist <laughs> because my degree is in English, not in folklore. However, my dissertation was on a folk play, mm. uh, a pastorela. Mm. So, I mean, I've always had a foot <laughs> in folklore studies and in English and literature. So what I did, I guess, was meld the two, the literary kind of, of course, storytelling and all that from folklore, and create um, portraits, images. That's why it's called, um, como, bueno, tú lo leíste en español, right. imágenes de una niña fronteriza, um, because it is these little snippets that give you the whole picture mm -hmm. through little short vignettes, if mm -hmm. you will, mm -hmm. of that life. And so the ethnography part of it is the folklore research. I mean, I've been researching, for example, Matachines mm -hmm. <laughs> for over right. 30 years. Um, the quinceañeras, the birthday parties, the tamaladas, all of that cultural food waste along with the religious and, and some secular, like George Washington's birthday. But all those fiestas inform the narratives. Mm -hmm. The novel I'm working on now, Champu, or Hair Matters, it has a lot of ethnographic work in it too. Right, right. Um, and and I'll ask you a little bit more about Canicula here in a minute. But I do. One of the things that stood out to me too was the pictures, right? Because the pictures um, told that half of that story, right? Mm -hmm. Just kind of you're immersed into that um, description by looking at um, all the details that you describe in there. So I I, I do love um, that yeah. about it. Well, also the pictures kind of function as uh, contrapunctual because they don't always, the description or the narrative doesn't always jive mm -hmm. with the image. Mm -hmm. And basically, that's what our memory does. It right. doesn't always jive with the reality. Right, right. Um, so how do you incorporate this work into your teaching and, and scholarship? And mm -hmm. so when you're, where you, when you're, I'm thinking when you're training your students and when you're teaching the class, is it a little bit of everything? Are you, do you incorporate this? ethnography work into the, the classes? Well, definitely in the introduction to Chicanx folklore. Right, <laughs> That's right. the basis of it. I just finished that class. In fact, the exam is tonight. <laughs> um, the other classes, the literature classes, yeah, I, I look at narratives and look at the cultural context mm -hmm. and deconstruct on some level the armature that creates a plot based on folklore mm -hmm. and folkloristics. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, from a literary analysis perspective, whether it be feminist or border studies or Marxist or whatever, you have to look at that context. That's what creates the plot and the characters and what happens in the novel or in the short story. So yeah, I use a lot of that <laughs> for sure. Uh, on the other hand, sometimes students have not been trained mm -hmm. to do that, so I have to kind of begin what is folklore? What is folkloristics? How is that a <laughs> an academic study? Mm -hmm. uh, some people call it or, or can fold it into anthropology, but it's a little different. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe a lot different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So doing work, um, I've done an oral history project, um, and you know, and some of the things that so, or the techniques or how I teach or talk about um, sort of Latino life and. In my classes, um, I had a friend who is a trained folklorist. I said, "Well, you're doing folklore work." I'm like, "Oh, okay," <laughs> but uh, but you know, when you when you are so interdisciplinary, it's 
sometimes you go in and out, right? And you don't realize that you're incorporating different kinds of methods, uh, which, which is good, right? Like the students get this sort of a wider perspective on how to understand either a community or a culture or a, or a literary work. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and I would even expand that, uh, how you understand life. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because the text is one thing, and then your own personal lived experiences, you know, going back to Ansaldua and Moraga, mm -hmm. talking about that embodied knowledge mm -hmm. that we carry in our bodies, in our experiences. Right. So you just mentioned um, Las Tamaladas, and I this weekend we went to see for, I guess, this play that has been running for 26 years, I yes. believe. It's called Las Nuevas mm -hmm. Tamaleras. And it was a, it's a great uh, play. Everybody should watch it, although I, I think it was just <laughs> the weekend. <laughs> but, um, but I was so, you know... It, one of the things that I've noticed about San Antonio, and you have lived here in San Antonio for for, for many years, is that um, the the presence of the Mexican American culture is obviously very very um, very much alive, um, and 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 also in the arts and all kinds of sort of artistic expressions via plays, via there's a lot of murals, a lot of painters, a lot of writers here. Um, Don't so it's exciting. The music, <laughs> music too, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and so, to, how do how do we understand that without thinking about even folklore, right? Because that's part of it. That, that life, that production is is also incorporated in how we understand um, the cultural practices of mm -hmm. of our community. Absolutely, I always say San Antonio is like a living laboratory because you can go anywhere in town and be able to do a linguistic analysis, right. <laughs> cultural analysis. Uh, as a scholar, you have so much mm -hmm. happening everywhere. You can go interview a piñatero right. <laughs> about ephemeral arts and paper arts, and, and I mean, my students get some of that. But I think even just regular folks, not academics, are enriched mm -hmm. by the many, many manifestations, and the celebration of that culture. Mm -hmm. the, the tam Nuevas Tamaleras is only one of many plays that happen in town. The exhibits at the museums, the music, the concerts, I mean, the Tejano the Music Awards. The Bailes Folkloricos. We just had that symposium at Trinity. I mean, it's just incredible how rich culturally, and I would say spiritually, mm. because the culture reflects the spirit mm -hmm. of that community. And if you appreciate it and honor it and celebrate it, you're celebrating your spirit mm -hmm. as Chicanas, or in this case, Mexican-American. A lot of people don't like the word Chicana. Mm -hmm. Or J Hispanic, although I don't like that word. A lot of people here identify with it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So today we're recording on December 12th, and it's El Dia de la Guadalupana, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was driving this morning on Bandera Street, and I saw people, I don't... Matachines. I guess, at procession. Mm -hmm. like, and I'm like, oh. And it took me a minute to realize that... Um, what the date was, you know. Well, like last night mm -hmm. at the cathedral, mm -hmm. they started at 10 p.m., mm -hmm. so they go all night. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the Mantachin dancers um, and the Conchero and the Aztec dancers, all in honor de la Virgen. Right, mm -hmm. and, and, and that's unique, right? You don't see that everywhere. Um, you might see, in terms of, maybe I'm coming from the Midwest, so I... It's well, very rare. Let, let me tell you, I was sitting at El Torito restaurant in Kansas City, Kansas uh -huh. about six years ago, 
and I start hearing the drumming and it sounds like matachin drumming and I'm going, what? I go outside and yes, there's wow. a procession of matachines down the street mm -hmm. in Kansas City, Kansas. And then I start researching it. So it must have been up eight years ago because I've been here six. There's 14 groups of matachines in Kansas. in Kansas City, Kansas and in Kansas City, Missouri. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm sure in Ohio <laughs> there were some matachines somewhere, yes. mariachis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're there. <laughs> right, right. So and it's, uh, Américo Paredes called it Greater Mexico. Donde hay raza. Sí, ahí, so, ahí vamos a encontrar mariachis, mm -hmm. yeah. folclórico, and uh, Guadalup Guadalupana devotees. And today, yeah, the, the celebration go actually started in many of these communities, the, the danzantes, on December 3rd. Mm -hmm. And then they dance for the nine days. Mm -hmm. And now I've heard they've done 12 days, docenaria, no nomás novenaria. Mm -hmm. And so they dance and culminates last night on the 11th. That's like the big night. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's on Mexican TV and everything. Right. So, you know, yeah. It's pretty special. Yes, like you said, the San Antonio is a, a lab. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so another thing, and, and that's, I like to incorporate some of those things that are happening in, in, in our community, in my classes, and to push students, especially undergraduate students, to go into their community and get to know their community. Uh, because this happens to a lot of us. We... Be, uh, we're isolated isolated within our mm -hmm. own you know sort of neighborhoods or like work school life and and we don't um, explore and so I know I've talked to students undergraduate students that have lived here for a long time and I'm like oh did you know about this and I'm learning you know as I'm new they're like no I'm like oh you need to go visit this so I'm making recommendations right to the students because sometimes because of I don't know time um well, I Life, think, you I know? think there's two things. One is the obvious, if it's so common, you don't value it. Right. Mm -hmm. Because it's what you do. Right? Yeah. So yeah. what's so special about a tamalada? My abuelita has one every year. Yes. <laughs> and, and if you're from the outside, it is special. Mm -hmm. So that's one. The other is there's a tendency, especially about younger people, not necessarily university, but high school, por ahí, they reject it. Mm -hmm. I did. When I was like in high school, I listened to rock and roll. I didn't like to listen to conjunto. You know, right. there was this semblance of, of wanting to assimilate. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even know consciously I was doing it. It was just part of the way that the culture works mm -hmm. and forces, especially teenagers, to reject the home mm -hmm. culture. And hay un poquito de vergüenza. You know, you, you feel embarrassed mm -hmm. when that comes in. And it takes a while. By the 20s, you start reassessing yeah, and thinking the, hmm, and reclaiming the language and the food and everything. Yeah, and so I know that's happened. I've seen that with mm -hmm. students in, in college where they come and they begin to reconnect. And also, I mean, in, in terms of language, some of them have been not, um, have not had the best home environments for language building and um and pride, right? Mm -hmm. And so they come a little bit wounded to our classes, and mm -hmm. here we're, but they still, they want to connect, right? Sure. And so we start that process at the university. So there's always time. I always tell my students, there's always mm -hmm. time. And I always tell them, it's not your fault. It's mm -hmm. not your fault that your parents didn't teach you Spanish, because mm -hmm. right away they say, oh, they I said, no, they were trying to protect you mm -hmm. because of their experience. Right, right, absolutely. Um, Norma, recently you received, um, 
much-deserved recognition at Gemini Inc.'s 22nd Inkstravaganza, which also is a new uh, event and organization that, I, that I'm learning about. And I was lucky enough to be there and to witness the impact you have in younger and older generations and how much people have been touched by your work and by your words. Can you share just a brief reflection about that evening with us? Oh, wow, sure. But I do want to stress that it isn't anything special. I don't think we're aware when we're doing things. I just do things because they need to be done. <laughs> and I love that about you, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Gracias. But really, I don't think we realize the impact our actions and our words have. For example, aside from extravaganza that same week, I was in Laredo for a, a celebration of the 40th anniversary of the Literacy Volunteers Program that I started 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. I had no idea that that was going to happen, that these people would continue to have it 40 years later, mm -hmm. and it's still making an impact. Mm -hmm. You know, this woman who had just received her citizenship came up and thanked me, and another one who was getting her GED, um, because they announced that I was the founder, <laughs> so they all came. And it was the same kind of feeling for Yingstravaganza. I mean, I've taught for them, I support them, mm -hmm. I do things with the writers in town. I just do what I need to do. So, you know, it's obviously an honor, and I feel very humbled that they recognize that work, but it isn't anything special. All of us do work, mm -hmm. and all of us do different kinds of work in different realms. And so I just happen to be doing work that gets recognized in that realm. But there are many other things I do that pasan por, you know, mm -hmm. nobody notices. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. That's not why you do it. Right. And I think that message needs to be really strong for a beginning writers who just want fame and want to be famous. Mm -hmm. That's not why you write. <laughs> At least I don't write for that. It's mm -hmm. because there's a need it's almost like you need to breathe you need to write and so you do it and I think the fact that it gets recognized well that's nice mm -hmm. <laughs> and of course if you get to sell your book and get that would be even better but that's not the reason for doing the work mm -hmm. and Ansaldua says you know <laughs> vale la pena it is worth the pain and she's talking about doing work that matters mm -hmm. whatever that work is because it's different for all of us. Mm -hmm. uh, you often talk about um, writing about the border, the border experiences. And I have to say that, like I mentioned before, Canicula, um, I, I read that while I was in Ohio and was transported to my own border town. And that experience of living in the US border, um, and it, I, I think it was particularly special because I was so far from it, right, um, to, to reconnect and to when your descriptions of the heat, really. Uh, I must have been reading this in the winter in Ohio, so it was like <laughs> welcoming, you know, the, yeah. the heat. Um, so I've taught this novel and often, often wonder if my um, primarily white students in Ohio could feel the border the way I felt it. Um, and, and understand me, their professor, maybe a little bit better after reading this, this novel. And I'm not sure if they did, but they were exposed to it, right? Um, and they connected to it in, in ways that, um, you know, we could see those experiences as unique, but also not 
so much different than their own sort of growing up, right? And with their families, with their particularities. Uh, so tell me a little bit more about writing La Frontera. <laughs> why, why this and, and, and how, I don't know, what, what have you heard uh, from people that read that work? One of the surprises um, very early on, I, I published it in 95, mm -hmm. And one of the things that really surprised me was how people reacted who had no link to the border. Right. And I think it has to do for two things. Maybe the nostalgia, especially people my age who would remember things from that period. Pero también the sense, I mean, the novel is about three things. The border, yes. Mm -hmm. And it's set on the border, and there's all kinds of stuff about the border. Pero también it's about memory. Mm -hmm and remembering or misremembering mm -hmm. what happened. And childhood, we all have a childhood. We all went through coming of age mm -hmm. uh, events. And that's what the novel chronicles, is that coming of age period. So Nena is in high school at the end, you know, she's graduating, but it doesn't end with graduation, it ends in December. So I purposely did not want to have it be a regular uh, arc, mm -hmm. you know, the narrative arc of this little girl growing up and then graduating. It was more complex. It is more complex for all of us. And I think that's why it resonates. I write La Frontera every, in everything that I do because that's who I am. My life experiences, my life formation is all about that border experience. It doesn't necessarily also have to be that geopolitical border. Mm -hmm. It can be the border between academia and non-academic, mm -hmm. the secular and religious, language. Uh, language definitely Spanish and English, and Spanglish, come mm -hmm. on, I, <laughs> I always go to. Um, gender, I mean, there's so many borders that we live that a novel like this kind of hits home on some level. Mm -hmm. It may not hit all of them, but on some level, a reader is going to respond to it. I have had students who react to the Spanish in it because they're monolingual English speakers. Mm -hmm. uh, and that at that point, I always go, hmm, well, you know, when I read certain writers, I have to translate from French or whatever mm -hmm. other language they're using. It takes work. Mm -hmm. And you, ha you have to be willing to do that bit of work. Mm -hmm. Of course, if you're bilingual and you're from the border, como tú, mm -hmm. it's a natural. You can read that discourse very easily. Right because it's a familiar one. Right, right. Um, and I think of, um, uh, not necessarily particular to this, um, to this novel of yours, but whenever we read sort of bilingual um, uh, works of fiction, um, with readers that might be monolingual English speakers, um, I think it's, it's also pushing them to think about what those experiences might be, or um, what the experiences of those who are still learning English are when they can't understand the whole conversation. Get, you know, it's, I think it's a good um, practice to go through that, right? To, to know or to alcanzar unas pocas cosas and then not, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then look for those, you know, look for that information of what that means. And the ambiguity mm -hmm. that it presents. Um, some people do the work and go and find out and, and do it. Others don't. 
the trick is to make it have meaning and make sense without having that. Mm-hmm. Y por ejemplo, with a language, there's a piece in Canicula where <laughs> the, the publishers wanted to me get wanted me to get rid of all the Spanish. <laughs> I of course resisted. Lucky for me, uh, Cormac McCarthy had just published a novel where he put entire paragraphs in Spanish and did not translate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, my argument was, if he could do it, why can't I? Yeah. And they had to back down, but they, I understood why they wanted it. It's to make it accessible so readers, I mean, basically to sell books, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I did go back and comb through the, the manuscript looking for places where I could do it, where I could translate without translating. Mm-hmm. So, uh, let's see. Chinches, garrapatas, hormigas, some are all of these pests. Ticks, mm-hmm. please, tiny spiders, the color of sand. Some are all of these beetles find their way. So you see that the two lists, right. they're not exactly translated, but you get the yucky right. <laughs> feeling of the bugs. <laughs> and so that, that was one technique, if you will, of mm-hmm. translanguaging, mm-hmm. of trying to put them in a context that could be meaningful for a monolingual English speaker, although it has Spanish in there. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, Norma, you most recently published Meditación Fronteriza, Poems of Love, Life, and Labor. And I wanted you to uh, maybe share. Uh, mm-hmm. if, if Wait, let me tell you, that book mm-hmm. took 30 years. <laughs> 30 years? There's okay, poems. so I shouldn't feel bad about this book that I think I'm... <laughs> that I think I'm writing <laughs> for the last two years. <laughs> Absolutely not. You know, my belief is every book has a life, como cualquier otra cosa, and it is born and it goes on. Sometimes it dies, sometimes it, it is born, <laughs> and so it keeps going. And you never know how long it's going to take. I mean, my Matachines book, I'm still working on it, and it's over 20 years. Pero este libro, the poems came throughout the 40 years, in one way or another, and I would just write them and put them away and put them away. It was not a book. It was just poems. Cuando me senté in 2016 to put them into a book, I realized they fell into kind of categories. And, of course, I didn't include all the poems that I wrote in those 40 years, nada más los que fit into the categories. And uh, the section called um, The Body, Decolonizing the Body is one of them. That poem was from... I don't know, in the mid-90s. There was a poem I wrote in Spain in the 80s. I mean, there were all these different uh, that came through. And it's a libro muy especial for me because it gathers that, and I can see the trajectory. Mm. But the whole unifying theme is the border. Mm -hmm. Whether I'm in Spain or in Laredo, it's about the border. And um, it's about friendship. Mm -hmm. I mean, love, life, and labor, kind of covers everything. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, there are love poems in there. There's uh, absolutely about labor, about work. Mm -hmm. There's one that I wrote. It's an occasional poem for a janitor who was retiring at the university in Laredo when I was there, Romeo. So it just includes all these different aspects of that life. Mm -hmm. It's a very special poem uh, that begins it in the section on the border Es mi tierra fronteriza, pedazo de mi corazón. And I think that says it all. <laughs> and, and then I go back and talk about the grandparents who were there, the indigenous people that were there, and they lived and they died. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's like a continuum 
And I am part of that. In fact, the poem ends that I will be here until hasta que se llegue la hora de mi muerte, mm. muerte al fin, linked to birth. <laughs> so. Yeah, yes, no, thank you. Thank you for that, writing that and putting it, oh, writing it throughout the last, <laughs> what, 40 years? I said 30 years? Um, and then putting it all for us to, to enjoy. So my daughter, my youngest daughter right now, currently has your book, and so she's, she's reading that. Mm -hmm. um, Tell it, her to read it um, and think about her own poems. Mm -hmm. I tell my students, yeah, what sometimes what drives me to write is reading. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And especially if I'm reading poetry, me dan ganas. I want to write poems. Right, right. Yeah, no, I, I think I have that same experience. That, and I think that's why I'm also a slow reader, because I start reading and I'm like, wait, I want to write some of these ideas that I that mm -hmm. just popped into my mind. So, mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Um Doctora Cantu, what are you working on now? I mean, Los Matachines, we of know. Of course. <laughs> and you know, that book has been done. I mean, hace muchos años que lo terminé, but the Matachines keep dancing, so mm -hmm. I keep wanting to add right. <laughs> every year. The most recent is uh, a couple of years ago, I nominated them for a National Heritage Award, and they won. Mm -hmm. So now I want to revise the book and mm -hmm. add that chapter yeah. about how they... Um, exemplify a tradition that is ongoing from the indigenous from 500 years ago, the conquista, mm -hmm. and they're still there. Mm -hmm. So I want to add some of that into the book. No sé cuándo lo voy a acabar. So yeah, I'm still working on that. But I'm also working on a novel because I have a shampoo mm -hmm. or hair matters. I'm having so much fun with it. I haven't touched it in the last three or four months, but I want to write something about it and I add another piece. It's una colección in Laredo at a beauty shop, mm -hmm. Diamond, Salon de Belleza y Estetica Unisex, Diamond. <laughs> and Diamantina, se llama La Dueña, has a little, uh, a house where she has her salon. And in the back, there's a room. Doña Lola comes and reads cards on Tuesdays and Fridays. Mm -hmm. And actually, it's based on a real salon in Laredo where they do this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, but of course, the metaphor there is that you take care of the body, the physical, but you also take care of the spiritual with the cards mm -hmm. and the consejos and all that. So those are two that are ongoing. I have a book coming out called Portraits, Chicana Critical Biographies. And what I did there, Raquel Valle Sentillas painted 12 portraits of Chicana authors. Mm -hmm. And I invited scholars to write critical biographies of these 12 writers mm -hmm. and put them in a book. It's coming out of University of Arizona Press. I think it should be out in February or March. And then there's another book out of Trinity University that's coming out. Um, it's a little different. Uh, it's on La Llorona. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's an anthology that has mm, testimonials, if you will, of people who have witnessed La Llorona. Uh, some fiction, academic papers of La Llorona in Santa Cisneros, Woman Hollering Creek, you know, stuff like that. So it's a real hybrid anthology. And that should be out by AWP, uh, Association of Writing Programs, meeting in March. So it should be out by then. Great. You're always busy. You're always Fíjate busy. Fíjate que sí. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how not to be. But I, uh, I, I was telling somebody recently, you know, it's not a job. It's my life. Mm -hmm. And they're not, <laughs> I can't put them in a little hole and say, okay, this is this and this is that. I go to a movie, I'm watching the movie, and I'm thinking about all the plot and the writing and the dialogue. Right. 
I don't know. Maybe that's not good, but I, it's the way I do it. <laughs> I and I'm reading. I'm always it. reading. I, I, my students are shocked when I say I read four books a month. And she said, once, one a week? I said, yeah, sometimes two. <laughs> I read a lot. That's great. That's great. Um, Norma, gracias por esta conversación. Claro. It's been my pleasure. I love, love talking to you. Thank you. A todos, gracias por escucharnos. Y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima. Thank you.